0: Course in metaphysics, and today I want to talk about the subject of metaphysics. In the previous two lectures, we've been talking about a number of preliminary matters, and this is as it should be because one of the ways in which Aristotle describes the science of metaphysics in the course of doing it is. The science we are seeking, and it's as if it's an elusive discipline which is just eluding his grasp as he reaches for it, he almost has it, not quite, and so forth. How can we grab hold of it? What is going to be the distinguishing characteristic of this science of metaphysics, the science that we are seeking? Well, sciences are compared and distinguished from one another, of course, by their subject matters. So the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what is the subject matter of metaphysics? If it is a discipline distinct from others, it must have a subject matter distinct from others. Now, Aristotle, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things he did earned him the title of father of logic. The so-called organon of Aristotle is the series of works which are devoted to logic, the various parts of logic. Now, logic is principally aimed at what argument? at demonstration, and when Aristotle analyzes demonstration, he will move back to its component parts, and his organon, his logical works, can be arranged in terms of the components of an argument. Well, what is an argument? What is an argument? A science is going to be made up of arguments or demonstrations proofs. And yet we want to say that one science differs from another in terms of its subject matter. So we have to have some sense of what is the subject of a science before we can determine what the subject of a particular science is. Now, an argument is going to look minimally something like, well, if P, then Q. If something or other is true, then something else is true because that something other is true. Normally, when we think of just a hypothesis of that kind of hypothetical proposition, if P, then Q, the components or the values of the two variables, P and Q, would be themselves propositions. If so-and-so is married, then so-and-so is happy. So we would see a relationship between two propositions. When Aristotle analyzes arguments, when he analyzes discursive reasoning, he suggests that what we are trying to do is to prove the truth of a given proposition, which minimally would be composed of a subject and a predicate, S is P. So what a proof is trying to do is to establish the truth of S is P. And of course, if P then Q, Q would be presumably a proposition that would look like S is P, and P would be as well. So you'd have a relationship between just two propositions, as I mentioned earlier. What Aristotle is suggesting is this. When we consider that the proposition, the truth of which we are trying to establish, can be designated S is P. What we need is something that will link together the terms of that proposition, the predicate and the subject. So he is looking for a mediator between them, something that joins them together, something that links them. And what he proposed in his analysis of discursive reasoning is that what you need are premises or propositions that come first, such that a middle term links the subject and the predicate in those two propositions so that what we would have in the premises is S is M and then M is P therefore S is P which is the proposition we wanted to prove. So Aristotle's analysis of discursive reasoning, he calls it syllogistic, which is the Greek term for discursive reasoning, is that you need three terms at least. You need the subject and predicate terms of the proposition which is to be proved, and those terms, the predicate and the subject of what will emerge as the conclusion, have to be linked in the premises in a quite specific way. So we would say if... All S is M, and all P is M, then all S is P. That's a fundamental form of what Aristotle called a syllogism. It is the structure of reasoning for Aristotle, and indeed, when you think about it, for anyone. At any rate, this is absolutely essential for asking now what is going to be meant by the subject of a science. We first of all had to ask, well, what is a proof? What is a demonstration? What is an argument? and our first look at it would be in terms of these very abstract and symbolic terms, S, P, and M, subject, predicate, and the middle or linking term between them in the premising or the premise, the propositions that go before or place before the premises of the conclusion. Now once you have that sense of the structure of argument in the syllogistic form, then you have something to which you can pin discussions as to what the subject of an argument is. The object of an argument, what we've been talking about up to this point, is the truth of what emerges as the conclusion. We want to know whether S is P is true. And it's not such that you just look at it and you see that it's true. There are, Aristotle said, propositions like that. If somebody says the whole is greater than its part, you don't say prove it, you say, well, of course, I knew that. If somebody says if you take equals away from equals, the results are equal, you'd say, yeah, I know that. You know that simply in virtue of knowing the language, knowing what equal mean So we don't ask for proofs of those. Those are, Aristotle would say, immediately known. That is, you don't need a middle term. You don't need a link between the predicate and the subject in order to see that they're true. But where you have an argument, of course, the proposition whose truth you're interested in is not self-evident. It doesn't wear its meaning on its face. You want to know, why should I hold that's true? And in order to hold it as true, you have to link it to other things that are true and which embody the linking or middle term in themselves. So the logic of argument is minimally that, syllogistic, it involves three terms, and of it we can say that the conclusion is true because the premises are true. So syllogism generally will be that certain things being true, something else follows from the fact that they are true. And this analysis, this kind of symbolic layout, is meant to draw attention to that. Over and above merely the structure of proof, the kind of formal logic, In order to have a science or proof that would be constitutive of a science, we need a demonstration. We need something which in the Greek would be apodictic, something that is necessary, something that is inescapable. You can have certain arguments they will obey the form of a syllogism, but the conclusion is not one that you'd go to the wall for, even though it follows from the premises. If you say, well, parents love their children, Susan is a mother, therefore Susan loves her children, Well, maybe she does and maybe she doesn't. It's not a necessary kind of relationship, even though there is the necessity of the consequence. Given those premises, that conclusion follows. But does what it state express a truth that is always and everywhere necessary? That's the note, you see, that the Greeks wanted for anything they would call science or episteme, anything that would be apodictic to know a truth which could not be otherwise, what could not be otherwise. So it's not true today, wasn't true yesterday, it won't be true tomorrow. There is knowledge like that, of course, and a lot of it, and it's very important for our daily lives, but that isn't what the Greeks meant by episteme. By science in the strong sense, they meant knowledge of that which cannot be otherwise. And that, of course, makes severe demands of the formal structure of a proof. That means not only do you have to have something that necessarily follows from the premises being true, but you want premises which state necessary truths such that what follows necessarily is a necessary truth. That's the demand of episteme of science in the strong sense for both Plato and Aristotle. That is one of the most persuasive reasons that Plato gives for the existence of ideas. If there weren't ideas, if there weren't stable, changeless, permanent objects of our knowledge, our knowledge could not be. If our knowledge was only of changeable, evanescent things, the kinds of things that we sense and that lie around us, then knowledge would be as fleeting as those things. So, if knowledge, stable, necessary reality. That's the strongest argument, I think, that Plato found for the doctrine of ideas. And Aristotle shares that notion that if you're going to have knowledge in the strong sense, you're going to have knowledge of something which cannot be otherwise. Okay? So, not just a proof, but a demonstration. Not just an argument, but an argument that concludes to a necessary truth. That's the general idea of what a demonstrative proof is or what makes up a science, any science. And what we're asking now is, well, how do we distinguish the sciences that are already available, let's say, that are unquestioningly so, from this science that we are seeking, metaphysics? How is it going to be characterized relative to the other? Now, I've said that. The object of a demonstration or proof is the conclusion. We want to establish the truth of that conclusion and we do so by linking it to premises and to necessary premises if it is a demonstration. Now what we further want to be able to answer is this, well now what is the subject of the demonstration? And the quick answer to that is this, the subject of the demonstration is the subject of the conclusion. That about which you are proving something in the course of the argument through the middle term. And ideally, or the strongest kind of proof will be this, you prove that a certain characteristic belongs to the subject because of what it is. That is, the middle term linking the property and the subject will be a definition of that subject. That is the tightest and strongest kind of argument there is. So that if you can show that the properties of a scalene triangle are such and such, because of what a scalene triangle is, that's a proof par excellence. Such a proof, if you ask what is the subject of the proof, it will be the subject of the conclusion of the demonstration. Now, if we say that's what makes a science or a scientific proof, we also have to take into account that we speak of a science as a body of knowledge, not just one proof, not just one argument, but a network, a set of arguments. And indeed, this is the case. But we find that the subject matters of different Demonstrations can be arranged under one another as generic, more specific, even more specific, and so forth. So, plane figure, triangle, scalene, triangle, and so forth. You get a kind of relationship between the subjects of different demonstration in terms of genus, species, and so forth. And that's what gives the network that underwrites the notion of science as a body of knowledge. So if it is the case that the subject of a science is the subject of a demonstrative syllogism, and if it is the case that the subjects of different syllogisms can be related as genus is related to species and species to more specific species and so on, we have the conception of science as a body of knowledge. And now we want to know, well, how do you distinguish sciences from one another? And they're going to be distinguished in terms of their subject matter, but now in this more expanded sense of subject matter as permitting, in terms of predicable universality, permitting a network of arguments, as in the example I gave from plane Geometry. What the problem is now for metaphysics is, how can we describe the subject matter of this science in a way that differentiates it from already agreed upon sciences? What are those already agreed upon sciences? natural science and mathematics. So the question would be, how do we distinguish mathematics from natural science? This is something that Aristotle has done several times in the course of the physics and other natural writings in order to characterize what he's doing and relate it to another recognized but different science, namely mathematics. And the way in which he does it is this. The definitions in natural science will always include matter and motion, whereas the definitions in mathematics do not include matter or motion. So there is not a principle of change in mathematical entities. We don't worry about their texture, we don't worry about their temperature, we don't worry about their location and things which are appropriate to material objects. So their mode of defining is the short statement. Their mode of defining differs. And when Aristotle then asked whether there is a science over and above natural science and mathematics, he has to ask after the appropriate mode of defining of that science. But before looking at that, I mentioned that for Aristotle, there's something chancy, there's something suspenseful about this pursuit of a science beyond natural sciences. He couldn't even raise the question until he had proved to his satisfaction in the course of doing natural science that there are some things which exist and which are immaterial. But once he gets going at it in the books of the metaphysics, as I mentioned, one of his recurrent descriptions of what he's doing is the science that we are seeking. as I say, that makes it seem elusive and chancy. But when you turn to the fourth book of the metaphysics, chapter one, you encounter this very confident statement on the part of Aristotle. There is a science that investigates being as being and the attributes which belong to this in virtue of its own nature. See, that's saying, being as being is the subject of the science. And what we are looking for are properties of that subject matter. So that what we called very rapidly, some moments ago, is being brought to bear here. Metaphysics is being looked upon in terms of the model of a science. There is a science, he says, which investigate being as being. That's the subject matter. And the attributes which belong to this in virtue of its own nature, in virtue of its definition. Now, this is not the same, he goes on, this is not the same as any of the so-called special sciences, for none of these others treats universally of being as being. They cut off a part of being and investigate the attribute of this part. This is what the mathematical sciences, for instance, do. Now, since we, Aristotle says, we are seeking the first principles and the highest causes, clearly there must be something to which they belong in virtue of its own nature. In that passage, he is characterizing this science as having as its subject matter, being as being, and as with the subject matter of any science, we are looking for the properties of that subject matter, and we will do it by seeing what belongs to it in virtue of its own nature, what would be expressed in its definition. The other particular sciences don't do this because they speak of a particular kind of being. Natural science is concerned with what? We can say now changeable being, physical being, natural being. That's a kind of being. We know it's a kind now because we know it's not the only kind there is. Mathematical science is concerned with being as quantified. And now this new science, the science that we are seeking, will be concerned with being as being. But notice how this paragraph I've just quoted, notice the final sentence in it. Now, since we are seeking the first principles and the highest causes, this is the whole point of doing metaphysics. We want to know the divine. We want to get to the ultimate explanation of things. How are we going to do it if we say the subject is being as being? We are seeking the first principles and the highest causes. Clearly, there must be something to which they belong in virtue of its own nature. The subject matter of metaphysics, being as being, is that in virtue of which we're going to be able to say whatever we can say of the divine, because we're going to be looking at the divine as the first causes of being as being. You can already see there a response to the difficulty that so exercised Werner Jaeger. And you can see there an initial payoff, at least of my claim earlier, that for Aristotle and Thomas. For metaphysics to be a theology, it must first be an ontology. It must first be a science of being as being. But here you have in this chapter, chapter one of the fourth book of the metaphysics book Gamma, this ringing assertion that there is a science of being as being. It is distinguished. It is distinguished from the other and particular sciences because they only deal with a kind of being, With natural being or with mathematical being or quantified being, whereas this science will deal with being as being. Now, that assertion, which is said, which is put before us, as I say, as assertion very ringingly, there isn't a doubt in his mind and so forth. We can see the area in which the claim lies. We can see that what we're going to have to do is to find some way of characterizing the subject of metaphysics, which sets it off from the other. He's given us an initial way. They cut off a part of being. This is going to study being as being. But in terms of the comparison between natural science and mathematics, which is already familiar to Aristotle's reader in the natural writing, that mathematicals differ from physical objects because you don't enter into the definition of mathematicals things which enable physical bodies to move around, change temperature, and so forth. Those things are simply not relevant. You don't describe a triangle as rough or smooth or hot or cold, here or there. It's just a triangle and has certain properties. As Aristotle says, this does not commit us, however, to there being such things, as if somewhere triangles had to exist in the way in which we consider them in plane geometry. This consideration of a triangle by the mathematician, which enables us to isolate the nature and definition of a particular, say, kind of plane figure and to study its properties and so forth, does not commit us to there being another realm of entities beyond Physical object. This is an abstract way. This is a way of thinking which takes off from and leaves behind many of the characteristics of physical objects, but does not commit us to there being another realm of existing things. Here, when he's talking about a new science, as we've already seen, unless he has proof, unless he has convincing arguments on behalf of the claim that to be and to be material are not identical. There is no natural science, there are no things other than natural substances. He has come up with those proofs, now he is able to say, being is a term that is more expansive than, it's wider than, it covers more things than sensible objects. So if we have a science of being as being, we're not just repeating ourselves, we're going to look at what is characteristic of what is, what belongs to the nature of something insofar as it is being, and that is going to enable us to hook up with the first and the divine causes. It all sounds, as I say, very straightforward, but it is fraught with difficulties, and it's fraught with difficulties that arise from Aristotle's own views, as well as difficulties that would occur to us. And one of the difficulties that will occur to us is somewhat like that that Aristotle used when he objected to Plato talking about the good and the idea of the good. Aristotle, in his ethics, kind of makes fun of that. And he does by saying, well, which sense of good do you have in mind? Good means lots of different things. I don't know what you mean by the good. Let's talk about a good or another good or this good or that good. And then we'll be able to tie it down and say something. But just to talk about the good doesn't make a lot of sense. Why does it make sense suddenly to talk about being? Why isn't this open to the same kinds of objection that Aristotle raised to the Platonic discussion of the good? Well, he makes this objection against himself. That is, he wants us, clearly, uh, to have this kind of difficulty, and he's going to try to address himself to it. He raises the difficulty by saying this, there are many ways in which a thing may be said to be. Well, if there are many ways, it sounds as if it's an ambiguous term. That seemed to be his objection to Plato. If it can mean all kinds of things, how can you tie it down enough? to say that you have a science of it? How can you say you have an account of its nature if the use of the term would suggest that there are lots of natures, lots of things, lots of meanings of the term being? Which meaning is it that we're supposed to have in mind in order to have a science of being as being? Or are we just simply going to have to say, despite this ringing assertion, and this is Aristotle causing a difficulty for himself, despite the conviction with which I open this fourth book, how am I going to handle this rather obvious fact that I have used as an objection to Plato and others, that the term being is not a term with a single meaning. It's not a univocal term. And isn't it the case that in order for something to function as the subject of a science, whether of one demonstration or a network, it has to be univocally common to the things to which it applies. If that is the case, then all the more reason it would seem that it's going to take a lot more than my asserting that there is a science of being as being in order for me to be able to show that there could be one, let alone that there is one. One of the fallacies that Aristotle draws attention to in his book of fallacies, Sophistical refutations, is precisely the fallacy of equivocation. If in the course of an argument you use a term with different meanings, the argument dissolves and it doesn't conclude in the way in which you might want it to. Ambiguity or equivocity, equivocation, destroy argument. And what Aristotle seems now to have to confront is this, Having said that there is a science of being as being, he reminds himself but being is equivocal. It's used in lots of different ways. This is the way he continues the passage that I began to read a moment ago. There are many ways in which a thing may be said to be, but all that is is related to one central point. This is his response now to the difficulty. Sure, there are lots of ways in which something is said to be, But all it is, everything that's said to be, is related to one central point, one definite kind of thing, and is not said to be by mere ambiguity. So he's addressing right on the difficulty that I have been suggesting. There are many senses of being, but this does not lead to ambiguity or equivocation. How can he show that? Well, he gives us an example, he gives us several examples, but let's just concentrate on one, because it's his favorite example, and it's the one that he uses again and again. And what he's looking for is the behavior of a term, of a common or shared term, which is not, on the one hand, univocal, that is, where in each of its relevant uses, we would give exactly the same account of it, so that if we said, Peter is a man, Xantippe is a man, Horace is a man, we would mean the same thing by man in all of those instances, all of those uses. So that we would say that the term man, as said of each of those, has exactly the same account or meaning. And that would be an example of what we can call a univocal term, or a term used univocally with one and the same meaning in all of the uses in question as opposed to what well sometimes we have a term that is shared the same word is showing up in a variety of uses but when we look at it we figure the meanings that i would give to that term here or the meaning i would give to it here has nothing to do with the meaning that i would give to it over here so if i said for example the boy stands on the burning deck or cut the deck, here I've got deck, the same English word spelled the same way, and yet if I tried to use the same meaning in both of those uses, I would dissolve into gibberish. So here it would seem that we have the same term, same spelling, the same orthographic symbol, deck, and it has two meanings, and they're totally unrelated to one another. There's no way in which we could find why the same English term is used in these two absolutely different ways. Or if there ever was a link, it's long been lost so that we're just faced here with pure equivocity, pure equivocation, as we would be in thinking of pen as a writing instrument and pen as the place up in Michigan City where people are imprisoned or as the kind of enclosure in which livestock are kept. The spelling is the same, but there doesn't seem to be any relationship whatsoever between the meaning of the term and the one use and the meaning in the other. We just have to acknowledge that in languages, that the same term is put to uses which are utterly unrelated. And when that is the case, we say, well, the term is used equivocally. Now, there's nothing about the term, of course, it's the use that makes it equivocal or univocal. Because if I say, this is a pen, and what you're writing with is a pen, what he's writing with is a pen, the term pen, of course, is going to be univocally common to all of those. Or if I say, Leavenworth is a pen, Michigan City is a pen, Joliet is a pen, where well, I'm using the term in exactly the same way. So, in these uses, the term could be univocal. But in the example with which I began, we would have the use of the same term. When we assign meanings to that term, they just aren't related. And so we say, well, we're equivocating on that term when we use it in that way. Now, Aristotle's problem is what? He can't say that being is a univocal term. He can't say that whenever we use the term being, we give one and only one meaning, and that's the way it works. He knows that being is said in many ways. And yet he doesn't want to say that this is an equivocal term. Because if it were, it would destroy the possibility of argument rather than found it. And he's trying to found the possibility of a science of being as being here. So he says the many meanings of being are related to some central point. And he illustrates it by the example of healthy Healthy, like pen or like man, in my other examples, is a shared term. And I can say that an animal is healthy. I can say that its urine is healthy. I can say that exercise is healthy. I can say that a certain diet is healthy. And here I've got the same term, healthy. And what Aristotle is saying is the term being functions the way healthy does in that set of uses. So that if we can get some purchase on how healthy is working here, there's no problem for it. Insofar as we know the language, of course we use it that way, and we're not confused by it. But when we look at it, we see well, we wouldn't give exactly the same meaning of the term healthy as we say it of the animal, and as we say it of its food, and as we say it of its urine, for example. All of these we would say are healthy, but we wouldn't give one and the same meaning. Are the meanings that we would give totally different and totally unrelated? What Aristotle invites us to see is this, that all of them involve a reference to health. Health, healthy, obviously. But that isn't the real linking point here. What he wants to say is this, one of the relations to health, one use of healthy, is primary, and it is that to which all of the others refer. So he says we would speak of that which is capable of health as the subject of health, as one meaning of healthy, that which preserves health as another meaning of healthy, and that which is a symptom of health as yet another meaning of healthy. But one of those meanings of healthy is controlling. The subject of health is that to which these other two meanings refer, Something is a symptom of health in that which is a subject of health. Something is preserves health in the subject of health. So what Aristotle is finding in his analysis of the term healthy, and he does it with medical as well in the passage that I'm referring to in Book 4, The Metaphysic, he sees here many meanings but an ordered set of meanings such that one of those meanings is controlling and enables us to find the connection with the others such that it isn't pure equivocity, it isn't pure diversity. That simple little example is for Aristotle the way out of the woods, the way in which he can have a science of being as being, even though being is said in many ways. It's as if he said, sure, I can have one account, one discipline of all of the things that I call healthy because they're not just said in many different ways. They're all related to one central meaning. This is the model to which he is appealing in getting a governable kind of unity to a science of being as being. And how does he then spell that out? He says, so too... There are many senses in which a thing is said to be but all refer to one starting point. Some things are said to be because they are substances, that is, autonomous existing units. Others because they are affections of substance, disposition of colors, quantities, place, and so forth. Others because they are a process towards substance, generation or destructions, or privations, or qualities of substance, and so on. He even says, we in this way are able to give an explanation as to why we call non-being, being. being. We say of non-being that it is non-being. And the analysis of these many senses of being on the model of that very simple example of healthy enables Aristotle to say, look, don't you notice that there is one meaning of being here that either we have in mind when we hear the term being or we're going to have to refer to it if the term being doesn't mean that flat out and that meaning is what? Substance, substance. So just as subject of health is the controlling meaning of the variety of meanings of the term healthy so either the term healthy means that the subject of health or it means something that refers to the subject of health. So this is the analogy, being either means substance, or it means something that refers positively or negatively to substance. And that gives us a control and a sufficient unity. So in order to speak of a science of being as being, Aristotle has to acknowledge the difficulty that seems to be an equivocal term He then establishes that as between an equivocal term, purely equivocal term, examples I gave of pen and so on, on the one hand, and a univocal term on the other, there is a middle ground. There are things which are said in many ways but with reference to some one thing. That's Aristotle's very descriptive phrase for the behavior of this kind of word. Thomas Aquinas will use the term analogy to designate words that behave in this way. And he will say, though Aristotle himself did not, that we can distinguish univocal terms and equivocal terms, and we can call this intermediate kind of common term that behaves in the way in which healthy does, We can call that an analogous term because the secondary meanings are analogous to or relate to the first or primary meaning of the term. Aristotle does not use analogy, though it is, of course, a Greek term, in just this way. But it's important to notice that Thomas does, and very often people read Aristotle as if this is the way he used the term analogy. Actually, it isn't. It's a small and linguistic point. But we can see that the central claim is this. Being is said in many ways. It's a controlled multiplicity. There is a primary meaning. That meaning is substance. That gives us the focus for metaphysics. The point that we've reached is absolutely crucial for understanding how it is that Aristotle and Thomas set up metaphysics as a science distinct from mathematics on the one hand and the philosophy of nature on the other. And what we've just been looking at addresses what would seem to be a tremendous roadblock in the way of having a science of being as being. And it is the claim, the observation, the objection That, well, wait a minute, being is said in so many different ways that I don't know how you can focus in a way that would be anything like what we mean by the focus of a science, where we have a subject matter about which we're trying to prove things. And Aristotle had said, there is a science of being as being, and we are going to show that whatever belongs to being belongs to it because of the nature that it has. And that can tend to suggest to one who thinks of the other sciences and thinks of Aristotle's logical work, well, there must be some univocal meaning of being that is being presupposed here in order to have a science. So Aristotle puts this objection, in effect, to himself. You're right. I know that. You know that. Being is said in many ways. Does that blow out of the water the possibility of a science of being as being? I don't think so, Aristotle said. Maybe I thought so earlier in talking about Plato's use of the good. That's been suggested by some very notable Aristotelian scholars that Aristotle didn't remember what he already knew when he objected to Plato. And that now he remembers it and he's able to apply it here. That sure, while you can have many meanings, they're not necessarily unrelated meanings. And it's little simple examples like healthy that enabled Aristotle to notice that there's a mid-case of shared terms between univocal terms on the one hand and purely equivocal terms on the other. Aristotle would call this equivocation by design as opposed to chance equivocation. As I mentioned, Thomas calls equivocation by design or this controlled ambiguity analogy And here you have a variety of meanings, a plurality of meanings, but one of them is controlling. Either that's what the term will mean, or if it means something else, that other meaning is going to refer back to this controlling meaning. It's what Thomas will call the primary analogate of the analogous term as opposed to the secondary analogous. And what we are being given here as the solution to this seemingly devastating obstacle to there being a science of being as being, is that there is sufficient unity when you have this controlled ambiguity or analogy. You can focus on the primary meaning of the term, and that will be sufficient to give you a science. So let me just put before you a number of passages in which Aristotle is making the point that I've been laboring to make here for you. For not only in the case of things which have one common notion does the investigation belong to one science, but also in the case of things which are related to one common nature, for even these, in a sense, have one common notion. Things that have one common notion, this clearly seems to mean things which share a term univocally so that in a science, when we're talking about the terms that enter into the arguments or demonstrations, presumably they apply univocally to either less general things in that science or to the particular, so that there is an application that is unproblematic of the argument to the things to which it applies, whereas in the case of being, you don't have that kind of unity. You don't have univocity, you don't have a single meaning. And Aristotle is now saying, reassuringly, you don't need that in order to have a science. It's not the case that each and every science must have one common notion or deal with things which share one common notion, read univocally common notion. But also in the case of things which are related to one common nature, for even these in a sense have one common notion. What does he mean by one common nature? Is this a surreptitious way to introduce univocity into the thing? If there's one common nature that they all share, why not say this is univocally common? Well, what was the example of healthy? Health, this abstract term, that's the one common nature. But the fact is that the many meanings of health incorporate health in a way that produces a plurality of meaning, subject of health, preservative of health, symptom of health. So, too, if there is a common nature here, it's not going to be some single meaning, but something that will enter into each of the meanings of the term being. So that example of analogy is going to be crucial for there being such a thing as the science of being. Another passage, this is chapter 2 of book 4. It is clear, then, that it is the work of one science also to study the things that are, Qua, being, as, being, insofar as they are being. But everywhere, science deals chiefly with that which is primary and on which the other things depend, and in virtue of which they get their names. If, then, this is substance, it will be of substances that the philosopher must grasp the principles and causes. The science of being as being, thus becomes for Aristotle chiefly the science of substance. And that is why, as the work proceeds, substance will occupy pride of place. And he will be asking, well, what do I mean by substance? And the idea is this. If he can give an account of the substantial being of things, any account of their incidental being is going to have to borrow on that so that even though the account of their substantial being is not just as such an explanation of their incidental being, it is presupposed by any such further explanation, and the science then of substance will be sufficient as a science of being. This is, for Aristotle, an absolutely essential breakthrough, because if he weren't able to satisfy himself and us that there is a sufficient unity, despite the madly different ways in which we use the term being, he's suggesting they're not all that unrelated. Reflect on them and you're going to find in the way in which he spelled out that they're all related in some way to substance. They all refer to one starting point. Some things are said to be because they are substances, others because they are affections of substances, others because they are a process towards substance or destructions, or privations, or qualities of substance, or productive, or generative of substance, or negations of one of these things, or of substance itself. It is for this reason, again, that we say even of non-being, that it is non-being. So the emergence from the variety of meanings of being, of substance as the primary meaning, is utterly crucial for Aristotle to be able to go on. And we can pause, I suppose, as we read this, and savor with him the kind of satisfaction that derives from confronting what looks to be a devastating objection and then being able to see your way through it. For Aristotle, this is the story of thinking. It's the story even particularly, we might say, of metaphysics. The third book of the metaphysics, book beta of the metaphysics, the so-called book of problem in which Aristotle just enumerates all of the issues, the aporiae, the obstacle that the wise man is going to have to handle if he is going to deliver on that description of the wise man that we analyzed a few lectures ago, so that the possibility of there being, a science of being as being, to be able to crash through this big obstacle in terms of equivocity and say, I can do it. It's possible, it looks unmanageable and so forth. All we have to do is concentrate on substance and say the science of being as being is as good as identical with the science of substance. So we can savor with him this great solution. But even as we do, we're going to find ourselves wondering if this really addresses the problem with which he began book four. That problem was how do you distinguish this science from the other and particular sciences, from natural science and from mathematics. We might not want to say that mathematics has substance as its subject matter, but it looks pretty hard to deny that what natural science is concerned with is substance, with natural substance. So the question that has to arise, and which he has not answered yet, is, How can we give an account of substance which is not identical with an account of natural substance? So it might seem, and I pose this as the difficulty to which we're going to have to turn, and which we have to address head on, it looks as if Aristotle's solution here merely lands him back in the same soup, where he's not able to show, or he seems to be talking about substance in a way that we have to be able to distinguish from sensible substance and this doesn't seem to be self-evidently the case at all so the first difficulty that i want us to see after we've savored a bit this great solution that aristotle has given us is that we could then say well substance in what sense substance in what sense in virtue of what can you say that substance is anything more than physical substance isn't it the case that if we were going to give any account of substance, we're going to go right back to physical things and we're going to have to talk about their characteristic. Indeed, that is the case. This is what characterizes books 7 and 8 of the metaphysics of Aristotle, which zero in on the notion of substance. You can think that you're almost getting a reprise of the physics of Aristotle. So that's one difficulty. How does just isolating substance as the primary meaning of being settle the question of the mode of defining of metaphysics that distinguishes it from natural science and mathematics and a far more important issue? Why is it that Aristotle seems now to be putting a premium on generality, on being as opposed to physical being or mathematical being? In the physics, he has suggested that progress is from the general to the specific. Now, suddenly, it's as if we're asked to celebrate the general as general. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.